Tēnā koutou katoa, and welcome to everyone. Kli hoon on the kākā. I am Bernard Hickey. I'm calling you to from the, the kākā in Dan, a Dannyvirk parking lot. Uh, and Peter, you're with us from Auckland today. I am. I am. I was going to be in Katikati because um, I've got this friend who, who grew up in Mingi Mingi and then and then had, had a place in Katikati. So she only goes to sort of palindromic places that, that, that you can say twice. Um, Bernard, Danifer never struck me as a particularly elegant, um, I mean, is it the entrance to the Manawatu or the entrance to the Wairapa, or is it, in fact, the exit from Hawke's Bay? It's, it's sort of a, well, it's a liminal space, really, Danifer, isn't it? Yeah, it's a sort of place you go oh, through rather than you go to. Exactly. Uh, maybe, exactly. Maybe I'm being a bit rude, um, but it is the, the beginning of that central Hawke's Bay huge open dry flat area mm. that some um some potential dairy farmers the ones who'd already uh uh blanketed uh, canterbury with uh, um cows wanted to do the same here as well mm -hmm. but they didn't get permission to get the water and that has um blocked that uh, attempt and the rivers will be um, slightly cleaner. For, yeah, it's for quite. Time I, my, I have a. Yeah. I have some connections to that part of the world, and I have a. I have a letter somewhere from my grandmother, written in the eighteen nineties, about taking a train from uh, Hawkes Bay down to Palmerston North um, through Dannevirk, and describing the unbelievable burnt-out forests uh, and the forest clearing that was going on there, and the whole place just smelling of kind of. The whole, you know, for mile after mile of kind of standing charcoal and, and trees. Yeah, no, which we love, which we love, of course, because we created that, a green um, and pleasant, civilized land out of it. Yeah, yeah. And now we? we need to replant it again. That's, that's yeah. the thing we need to do. Yeah, yeah. Robert, no, it, thank you very much for joining us. Can so, can I just, uh, one other thing on Bernard. another Hello, anecdote Peter. on Denver. Hello, Robert. No, no, you know about the Norwegians, right? Uh, yeah, no, they 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 started it off, Danny. Bernard, yeah, right? it's a very civilized place. Yeah, and, then, no, you know, um, and you can get some very nice Nordic sweaters there as well. Yeah, although there'd be a few Norwegians in Danibirk who might have thought, mm, maybe we should have stayed in Norway because we'd be richer. Exactly, mind they, you. Would. they would. Mind you, they, then they'd all have to um, worry about being invaded by the Russians, perhaps. Robert, it's, oh, it's good really segue. good segue. Now, speaking, ah. of, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of Norway segues and Robert, shall we bring Robert in rather than on Liz, Liz Truss? Because otherwise he'll just do his usual thing and think he can talk about housing, lettuces and Liz Truss. Instead of his, instead have of you his heard the lettuce's speech? Yes. Have you heard the lettuce's victory speech? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> uh, it was so. I mean, this is the thing about the Brits and political drama is they really do the humour well, and Twitter has actually been a fun place to be in the in the last couple of days. Yeah, but of course, from, the, the, for, from one of the podcast, the rest is politics podcasts that I thought the the, the editor of the Economist, um, uh, who was the wonderfully named and very glamorous Zanny Minton Beddoes. Um, wrote to Rory, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell and said, you know, please would you remind people that the lettuce line first came from The Economist and that the Daily Star may have gone one step further to have the actual lettuce, but they came up with the lettuce, which I, I you know, I, I put that in my newsletter last week and it was bloody funny. Oh, yeah, and, and the, the Daily Star did a really good job. So, A, the lettuce was the winner. And yeah. so they had a party. There was a disco ball. It was great. 69, 69p um, lettuce from Tesco. Now, another segue here, um, Robert. Uh, the Shetland Islands today has had its internet cable or cables mm. to the rest of the UK snipped. Mm. 
that reminds me very much of, uh, I'm not going to talk to a bunch of, um, you know, mid-50s men about snipping, of course, but it reminded me rather of the snipping off of the cable between Svalbard and the rest of Norway. And it does seem a remarkable coincidence that only the other day, Vladimir Putin said, you know, do be careful of your, uh, your underwater infrastructure. Yes, and Vladimir Putin has a zero-sum view of the world, and he believes that Britain is very weak at the moment. It's mm. it's not so long ago, I think it was 2017, when the outgoing uh, Russian ambassador to London said after Brexit, that we've now left you on your knees. And, um, uh, of course, Britain has been uh, a major supporter of Ukraine in resisting Russian aggression, to be fair, mm, and absolutely. has made, I think, second biggest contribution after the Americans so the Russians may well have, they may perceive this is a good time to pick on a perceived adversary, particularly with, you know, a lame duck government. But uh, uh, I think also they've been very angry about British support for the Ukrainian government. Well, did you, it, did it's you, a possibility. Did you notice the rather good Dmitry Medvedev, who is, I think, the chairman of the Russian Security Council now having been president and who's been rather strong in his language about Ukrainians, said bye-bye, Liz, trust Liz, congrats to the lettuce. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Medvedev is a, a good cheerleader of sorts for, or <laughs> condemner. But, you know, um, I, I think he's a lot of fear stalking the Russian political scene at the moment mm. because mm. the boss is in trouble. Yes, yes. And uh, no, one, so one other sort of critical point Bernard and I were talking about before we, we, we came on, the risk of accidents. And did you notice that Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, talked about a, um, an AWACS, a British AWACS plane over the Black Sea encountering two Sukhois, which one of which released a missile. Now, what was interesting about it to me is it was, it was un unclear exactly what released meant. I mean, did it just fall out of the plane and land in, land in Romania's territory or somewhere? Or, uh, and it was also beyond visual. Oops, uh, I was, wonder what Russian is for oops. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think somebody will probably tell us this, but I mean, we're all a bit worried, I think, about the, the risks of accidental escalation here, whether, you know, whether the Shetlands oh, yeah. thing might just be a trawler digging it up. It does seem a little bit too coincidental, whether uh, an unarmed surveillance plane being, um, oh, having yeah. a missile pointed at it is a little risky. There's always what, you know, Carl von Clausewitz called the fog of war or fog mm. of conflict. It's an ever possible, you know, inadvertent conflict is a possibility. But, of course, the person who can really close this down is Vladimir Putin. He can end this madness by withdrawing his evading troops. And um, while those troops are there, there's always the possibility of miscalculation, as you rightly allude to, Peter. And what about... So there's also been quite a lot of speculation. I mean, we, we've seen the Russians pulling uh, people out of Kershon. We've seen um, the you know General Armageddon saying that uh, he's expecting an attack from the Ukrainians. Um, Apparently, that's quite common for the, the Ukrainians have also imposed a bit of a media blackout in there. They area. have, yeah. From that's that often presaged a bit of action. I mean, what, what do you think's the time frame at the moment, speaking as a as a noted I, military analyst? Well, um, I've always been optimistic that the Ukrainians would take Kherson. Um, There's another disturbing development, though. I, in the last few hours, uh, President Zelensky has made a speech, I think about four hours ago, in which he alluded to the possibility of a russian false flag operation yeah uh, around the uh, karkovka um hydroelectric dam and that does make some sense because it would be a good way of sort of covering the tracks while the russians retreat 
because it creating would, a great flood. It would cause a great flood. It would slow the Ukrainian momentum down. It would affect Kherson. But of course, it would affect Russian troops there as mm. well. Um, so, but it would also cause big problems about the uh, Napovarish um, nuclear power plant. Zaporizhka. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. It yeah. depends on cooling water from the reservoir, uh, from the mm. dam. So, that's a boring development. And it's the sort of thing, uh, you know, Mr. Putin's pretty ruthless. Extremely ruthless and deeply cynical. Mm. I wonder too, uh, Robert, whether the um, the introduction of all of these Iranian drones and the targeting of the power infrastructure in Ukraine has ramped up again the uh, intensity of the, of the conflict. I think it has, and very interestingly, on the Russian state media, um, someone uh, spoke on a live mic when they shouldn't, and uh, the speakers in the uh, state uh, studio, uh, state TV studio, um, were instructed not to mention Iran, Iran, uh, where they got all these drones from, mm, of course. Mm. And of course, Russia, the Iran have confirmed that they've also signed a deal to send, not not as well as putting these uh, so-called kamikaze drones in place, they've also signed a deal to send missiles to Russia. Which well, have, have, they, have they confirmed it or have the Americans confirmed that? Because the Americans have also come out this afternoon confirming that there are Iranians on the ground teaching yeah, the Russians how to use these. Yeah, which could be precarious for them, by mm. the way. Mm. Um, it's interesting to me that the, the when we call them kamikaze drones, but Shahid, the, na the name of them, is, um, is, the, is, the Shia, is, the, is the Arabic word for martyr. Yeah. Of course, you know, the Iranians and the Russians work together in propping up President Assad. Mm. And I think it's a sign of desperation by Putin that he's now becoming so dependent on people like uh, uh, the Iranian regime, which have caused problems of its own at the moment with the country protest in the throes of turbulence and protest. Yeah. Did you see also... Um... The, you know this whole idea of, of, of the Iranian missiles that are in fact all that, that are not there as well. You've got Dmitry Peshkov said uh, this week, the Kremlin spokesman, Russian equipment is being used with Russian nomenclature. You know because they've, yeah, they've, I, re, they've I renamed the, the, the geranium too. But Mr. Putin, we always have to keep this in mind. Mm. Um, you referred to Putin as being deeply cynical, and I couldn't agree more earlier. You, you mentioned that, and Peskov, uh, you know, he's deliberately playing up the strong person or strong man mm -hmm. image of his boss, Russia mm -hmm. doing, taking on the world. And the last thing he wants to do is concede that they effectively run out of drones, which a number of Russian military commentators have alluded to, and that uh, they've been getting the worst of it in the conflict with yeah. Ukraine. So Mr. Putin is facing a major crisis. He knows if he, leaves, if he loses Kherson, that could happen in the next four or five days. Mm. Um, he may well be politically very vulnerable. I, I was a bit worried, um, uh, Robert, that they might um, evacuate most of Kershaw for reasons of staging a spectacular of some kind in the city. Look what we can do. Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, you're dealing with an authoritarian regime which is acting with impunity. So, and it has been for a long time. It doesn't make any distinction between civilians and military targets, as we've seen. And um, they've also got an ill-disciplined army, which seems to treat the civilian population, Ukrainians in particular, 
with indifference and uh, cruelty. So, you know, Mr. Putin's got a lot of options, but I, I think his day of reckoning is looming. And uh, he, if he loses Kherson, which has been the only real strategic gain of the entire special mm. military operation, there will be questions being asked in the Russian military and in FSB. It, it's not a, a, you know, a cost-free situation for Putin. Do, is there any chance, do you think, that um, as he gets more desperate, that he lashes out and chooses to use one of these tactical nuclear weapons as a way to um, uh, shock the situation? It's a possibility. It was a very interesting report. I don't know how reliable it is, Bernard, in the, uh, the British publication, the Daily Mirror, or was it the Sunday Mirror? But one of the Mirror newspapers said that Mr. Putin has attempted to detonate a nuclear weapon, but was thwarted by administrative complications. That The implication was that there was resistance within Russia. Mm -hmm. And that I don't know how true that story is, but I don't think Mr. Putin will be free to launch a tactical nuclear weapon. The Chinese have told him it's absolutely end of the game as far as they're concerned mm -hmm. if he does that. And I think it's bluff. Yeah, I just put up a link, um, Robert, to a, there was a very, very good Economist podcast this week of, on their Babbage, Babbage pod, podcast with a number of uh, military analysts describing exactly the difference between tactical versus strategic weapons, why Russia has so many when the US effectively gave them up, um, possibly as a, as, a, as a concession, in fact, to Gorbachev, but also because they didn't really work terribly well. But the damage... Uh, described by the nuclear experts on the economist thing is absolutely flabbergasting. Whether it's the immediate damage from the blast, the fallout, the decades of cleanup, it is just it's it's horrific. And I and I had forgotten, of course, that the, I mean, imagine having Chernobyl and this on your on your territory, Ukraine, it would just, um, you know, be a be a truly unforgivable act. You mentioned it uh, it and yeah. Sorry. You mentioned, Robert, Iran, uh, and obviously there's, there's uh, civil unrest in, in Iran going on at the moment. It's hard to tell exactly how serious it is or whether it's a threat to the regime, which, of course, is now um, tied up with Russia in Ukraine. Yeah. What, what's the, what are the risks here that, um, you know, Iran, that we have some sort of massive um, uh, civil problems in Iran at the same time as, uh, you know, not too far away it's it's a real mess in ukraine i think there's real problems uh, for the iranian regime i think they're in deep trouble and the reason i say that is because 60 percent of iran's 80 million population are 30 and under and this despite brutal attempts to suppress the protests they've grown and um I think this act of growth, despite the repression, has actually boosted the confidence of the protesters. They are fully aware that many people have been killed, more than more than 100, apparently, so 222, far. 222, or 23 now, I think, according yeah. to the BBC Persian service. Right. Yeah, so it's so interesting, but because it's number. really yeah. hard to get decent information out of it. Um, but I, I do think um, this uprising led by women has a deep constituency, has deep roots in Iran, mm. because many people have forgotten that many women supported the overthrow of the Shah of Iran on the basis that they wouldn't have to be burdened by having to wear hijab. Now, that, that, that you know, there was an old expression, you know, 
be careful what you wish for. Mm. Um, that certainly came into play because the regime that placed, replaced the Shah of Iran, the Islamist regime, of course, was much more repressive on the hijab front and much more conservative than the one that it replaced. But it was interesting to me that even in the 70s, Iranian women were seeking uh, to reduce some of the restrictions, social restrictions on them. So this goes back quite a long way. Yeah. And I don't think we should underestimate. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen some of the striking imagery of high school mm. um, young women and men protesting uh, against the regime. And uh, I think that it's very difficult for a regime when large numbers of young people effectively turn their back on the regime. And uh, I think they've got, the, you know, they, I think they've got their work cut out there. So coming back to Berners question i i think unless they can effectively suppress this protest in the near future it could rumble on and become very serious which which they managed to do last time in 2009 you know the green yeah. the green you know they did do a very effective job of shutting down the green revolution i think you're right though that the or that the, you, i mean it's it's culturally a rather extraordinary thing that you've got it's almost it's, it's a clash of uh, a different a definition and a sense of theocratic maleness uh, uh, and 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 youth, you know, it's it's young women and it's young men who are saying enough is enough. We want a future. I mean, because it, it is one of the saddest things about around that it has. Been, and I don't, you know, sometimes people will say that this might sound a bit like what what aboutism, but you know, the United States has not uh, has not been uh, innocent in its treatment of Iran since the since the hostage crisis. Mm. But you know, this is this is um, you know a really sophisticated country. That deserves to have its, you know, deserves to have its uh, place and its uh, to be treated with dignity. It's also going to have huge implications, isn't it, um, Robert? Including with, on the on the support for for Russia in trying to restart the uh, nuclear talks with Iran. Uh, yeah, and um, the thing that really strikes me, Peter, is that that in a sense the leadership, the theocratic government in Iran maybe actually taking a political risk in backing Russia mm. while these protests are going on, because it's, it's no secret that Russia ha has, you know, had quite under Mr. Putin's leadership has been very conservative and has, uh, uh, you know, pushed through anti-gay legislation and restrictive legislation, uh, dealt with pussy riot, you know, this, mm. this so protest very brutally. Um, and I'm just wondering if it will actually, the, the, you know, already these young people are calling the regime in Tehran a dictatorship. Mm. I don't think it's going to make them any less determined watching them support Putin's regime. Uh, so I'm wondering if they've actually scored a bit of an own goal. Yeah, it's such a, it's, it, it's so complex right now because you've got the weird, the, this weird alliance of authoritarians of... Um, uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia, you know the Sunni, the leader of the Sunni world, yeah. whose greatest enemy is um, theoretically the Shia uh, in Iran. But then you've got this weird confluence with Russia, kind of moving between the between the two of them in, in a weird alliance of authoritarians. And as you say, it will be very interesting whether Xi actually pulls the plug on all of that at some point. Yeah, well, it just well, he's slightly distracted. He's slightly distracted at the moment, just ensuring that um, he gets not his, only gets his third term, but, yeah. he, but he gets his own team, if you like. And I understand that um, there is the potential for quite a bit of change on Sunday when his...
top leadership team is named in the Congress. Robert, um, have you, have you been case. following the Congress in the last week or so? Yes, and, I have. It's and, been... uh, is there anything that sort of stood out? I, I think one of the things that really struck me was it was quite short on detail. Uh, it was quite big on pride and, you know, in the record of the last five years. Um, but I actually thought it was quite a cautious speech. And also, what really struck me as significant, I think the economic confidence of China is diminished. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is that there wasn't the quite the dramatic projection of growth that we've seen in previous speeches by leaders mm. of the Communist Party in China. Yeah, there's a very good piece in The Economist this week, uh, 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 Robert, about with, with the, the kind of buzzwords that have been used over the last 10 years, 20 years, and growth was growth really fell away this year, mm. and military and Taiwan rose up, and the emphasis on ideology and discipline, <clears throat> yeah, which means I think uh, belts are going to be tightened, and I think the other thing is mm. another thing I noticed was the big emphasis on self reliance. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Chinese have been really stung by the sort of restrictions America is beginning to put in place on high tech products. Um, and, uh, you know, the response from the leadership under Xi is, oh, look, we've got to develop world-class education yeah. so we can develop our own products. Yeah, there's a real self-reliance. The we, we are at the end of end of a, an extraordinary period of globalization, I think. Um, I, I, I'm, I hope not, but I, I suspect we are. It was also interesting to see that um, a Mao Thai manufacturing company, a brewer of, of the Mao Thai firewater, is now the largest capitalized company in, in, um, in China, taking over from Alibaba. You know, which is a gigantic transition. And it's interesting in the last couple of weeks, this uh, so-called chip choke, mm. where the Americans have uh, blocked um, mm. a whole bunch of American companies from working with those in China and effectively caused the immediate withdrawal of staff inside China and mm. uh, immediate technology transfer and the likes. And the other thing, I, I, um, I think a lot of people have this assumption that China is inevitably going to overtake America as the world's largest economy. But when you look at the demographics of their working age population and the long-term effects of the one-child policy, mm. China has a real demographic issue, a bit like Japan in a way, with an aging population that isn't being refreshed with migration, that's aging and uh, is starting to, to creak a little at the edges. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the Americans, by the way, are aware much more than they're saying publicly that some of the Chinese uh, Central Committee of the Communist Party are not enamored with Xi's leadership. Mm. The reason is because they blame him for slowing down growth. Xi has uh, made it, his anti-corruption campaign has taken out quite a few prominent people in the Chinese private sector mm. And there uh, has been a big emphasis on state-run organizations and state role in the economy since she has been in power, and that's increased. And so I, I think the Americans are putting the screws on a bit with a view to perhaps um, influencing opinion within Interesting. The, Chinese, the ruling Chinese yeah. Communist Party. Um, you, you can't rule that out. And, and, and I think the Americans have good information, good intelligence, uh, it's all you know it's easy to assume that the the ruling communist party of china is a monolithic group that does whatever she wants i think we know that's not true mm. and the i i think there are is deep concern within the chinese leadership about the loss of economic momentum 
and also the fact that China has begun to contradict some of its key principles in international relations by backing Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and that econ the economic aspect, Robert, not not to turn you into Anne Marie Brady, who is, is, is of course you know even cleverer than you. Um, the um, that's true. You can only you can only deliver on the Chinese dream by having that economic growth. You know that is the prom yeah. that is the promise that you have st stable, strong growth and better living standards than your children did, not that your uh, brand new fifty-seven story apartment block is demolished. But it, by it's Evergrande. also a warning to the Chinese mm. leadership to remind them that their growth to superpower status has been based on access to the world capitalist market. Mm -hmm. In other words, China hasn't got where it's got by being isolated from the rest of the world. Christ, that's a very Reggie Perrin reference there. And so <laughs> those people unhappy about Xi, they may, it may get them even more agitated, these, yeah. these restrictions on chips that Bernard was referring to. So we'll just have to watch that space. I, Robert, I, of I course, just get his five year term, but whether we'll get it for life is another matter. Bernard, can I flip Robert back to Ukraine for a moment? Yes. So, Robert, I just want to flip you back to the Ukraine because um, Ju uh, Julian Springer asked, asked a question which I have addressed in my spin off thing, which is why hasn't Israel uh, contributed the um, Iron Dome to, to, to Ukraine? Now, there, there, I understand there to be two answers to this. One is that uh, you know, Ukraine has an extraordinarily long front line, uh, which is much, much, much more difficult to protect itself from than, say, from Gaza. Um, the other, the other aspect is that Israel has more than ten percent of its population have Russian roots, mm. uh, and also the Russian oligarchy uh, is very. You know, many of them are dual passport holders, so they're quite. You know, Israel is quite deeply embedded into the. Uh, oligarchy and the and the group around Putin, and so it's and you know Benny Gantz said this week that they were not going to supply offensive weapons, but I'm I'm just wondering how tenable that is in the longer term. Well, it depends how how tough the Americans want to get. I mean, theoretically, the Americans which give the Israeli state, I think it's four billion every year yeah. up front at the beginning of the financial year. Um, you know, if they wanted to play hardball, they could make they could say something like, oh, we're going to reconsider that. But I don't think the domestic political process in the United States would allow that. Mm. So I, I think that the Israelis have calculated they can defy the Biden administration on this. I think the Biden administration would be delighted if Israel did provide this, you know, the anti-missile system like the Iron Dome system. Uh, but can't see it happening. Uh, why, why are the Israelis so reluctant? They have good relations with Putin. Hmm. Um, and um, I think the other thing is that Israel has improved its relationship with through the Abraham Accord with, with some the of the Gulf states, including yeah. Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> Saudi Arabia has good relations with Russia. Yes. And Russia, uh, they're both major. Yeah, so I think producers. this, I think this nexus that we talk, just talked about a minute ago of, of Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran is deeply concerning. The, the other thing I want to so um, we you know so apart from looking ahead to a possibly very dangerous weekend around Kershon mm. and and that threat against the uh, the uh, hydroelectric place. Um, you know, where, where do you think, where do, what do you think the next touch point is? Because I was really struck by um, uh, Mike McCarthy, the, um, uh, the Republican, saying that there might be, you know, depending on how the, how the uh, US elections go this year, there might be a restraint on the, the, the sort of open checkbook to Ukraine, 
which certainly yeah, put the yeah. wind up the Ukrainians. And that's, of course, assuming they do well in the midterms. And um, it, this is Kevin McCarthy, the the mm -hmm. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican so yeah. um, House Minority Leader, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean that 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 it's kind of sad actually that a Republican leader would actually say that we're going to restrict support for a state which is a democracy. Um, uh, we're going to, and it's the victim of aggression, and we're actually going to. Um, by restricting our support for the victim of aggression, we're prepared for the the aggressor, which is Russia, an authoritarian state, to have a greater say in the future. Yeah, of Ukraine. but let's let's remember how you know. I, I often think about this: how deeply embedded Ukraine was as a story and as a problem inside the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. You know, the sacking of the U.S. ambassador in but why Ukraine, was it the, such the a Biden story? investigate? Well, exactly because because I mean, it just go. And also, we see at the moment the un, not entirely unrelated story of the um, judicial investigation into the Russia, into so-called Russiagate uh, has come up completely uh, empty handed, you know? So, yeah. you know, the, the Putin's, Putin's uh, meddling in Russia and in the GOP go very deep, I believe. Robert, yeah, I, it, I mean, I thought that was a troubling statement, but it may yeah, backfire so. on the Republicans. So we better get Anne Marie on next week to have you on as a, as a oh. sort of weird weird double header with her. <laughs> well, no, that, I, I think Anne Marie's very she's I think she's wonderful on I China. Too. She's yeah. a hard hitting commentator, but I've always been a great admirer of her because I think she's been tremendously courageous. Me too. Yeah. She also spoke out in 2017 when it wasn't fashionable, mm -hmm. and has you know let's be quite clear about it. It hasn't been cost free for her no. speaking no. out on these issues. Well, uh, but I told so, you when she's I when actually I, largely been proven right. Yeah. When I talked to her about doing a 50th anniversary piece of New Zealand's relationships with China for North and South, but I, have I mentioned my North and South column no, before? Good, good um, on you. Thanks, by the way, to the contacts you gave Check. me, um, Robert, for the for the uh, for the guys in Victoria. I, I have talked to them, but you know, she she said to me at that time, Jesus Christ, I hope it's not just some boring piece about the um, you know 50 years since New Zealand opened since, since New Zealand opened its embassy. And I said, Good Lord, of course it won't be boring. <laughs> all right the, um i just wanted to say thank you very much uh robert for, for coming in um, thank you robert um, uh, but we never spoke about liz truss um ah, well if you stay oh, that's because the latest be. one i forgot yeah, well, yeah if yeah. you stay on we will you're most welcome to stay on in the background the latest, the latest one um we'd like to welcome to the hoon today for the first time kelvin davidson who is the chief property economist for core logic kelvin thank, thank you i don't think we've much. met before i'm peter bale i'm bernard's sidekick Actually, actually, Robert is Bernard's sidekick now, but <laughs> yeah. Peter's in uh, Auckland, um, Robert's in Dunedin, I'm in Danny Burke, and um, it looks like you're somewhere safe. It's great to see you. Thank you very much. This week, a big one for um, our own economy and the outlook for interest rates with our CPI inflation number coming in at 7.2%, coming in hot, as they say. Um, more than uh, the 6.5% or so that most economists had predicted around about. What did you think of the inflation figures this week, Calvin? Yeah, well, I mean, a bit of a surprise, especially compared to that consensus view of sort of six and a half. I think, you know, we don't necessarily forecast the CPI, but, you know, internally we were chatting beforehand and we just got the sense that um, there was a higher than normal probability that those numbers would actually be wrong. I just, I just had a, a hunch there was going to be a surprise this time. It was either going to be, you know, in the fives for some crazy reason, or that it could be pretty close to where it was. And you know, in hindsight, I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but you know, petrol prices, okay, they came off, but 
sort of month on month, but still a lot higher than a year ago. And keep in mind that inflation's annual. Um, if there's are up, the currency's down, adding some imported inflation, construction costs still up a lot. So yeah, it felt like there was scope for an, a surprise either way. Uh, and actually it was, it came in pretty close to where it was. So, and of course that, that kicked off the bank economists uh, racing to increase their, the OCR forecasts. Yeah, so quite a, um, a shock for the market, but also the economists have ratcheted up their forecast for the official cash rate peak next year to, in some cases, over 5%. How has that flowed through? Uh, because obviously the swaps market moved as well. How is that starting to flow through into the mortgage market? Yeah, well, we've already seen, uh, I think a couple of banks have already increased rates in, in response. I think one of the banks even increased rates in advance. So it's hard to know whether they're sort of trying to get ahead of the curve or they're, or they're reacting. Either way, you know, a lot of banks are increasing mortgage rates now and you're looking at, you know, pretty typical sort of one year uh, high equity fixed rate of, of 6%. So, um, you know, pretty, uh, pretty chunky change. I think, you know, this whole refinancing wave has been a, a big theme for a long time there. And I, I sort of look at it in two ways at the moment. Um, there's still a lot of people on fixed rates and due to reprice in the next 12 months, still about 45%. But it, it go back a year ago and it was 70%. So actually that sort of wave hit, people are working through it. And, you know, so far they seem to be adjusting. Unemployment's low, uh, repayment problems at the banks are low. So there, there doesn't seem to have been undue stress. Now, um, easy for me to say, sort of sitting here, and, and I'm sure people out there, there are some people struggling, but, uh, you know, you've got to look at that and say, well, okay, we're, we're sort of coping all right so far. Now, that 45% who are repricing the next 12 months will still be looking at a big change. And so that's that's still to come. But you sort of try to look at it a little bit positively, I suppose. Um, one, one extra caveat to put across this is that you know, where do we get to that point? Because everyone says, well, serviceability has been tested. So, you know, whatever happens to interest rates, uh, people have been tested at seven and a half, eight percent, whatever. So it's so it's all good. Now, some have, but you could imagine, and it's very hard to prove this, to test this. You never quite know what serviceability rates were at any point in time. But um, there, there could be people who took out a one-year fix at the end of last year who might have had a mortgage rate of 3%, let's say, they had already started to increase by then, maybe 4% even, who might have had a serviceability test rate of 7%. Um, now, when they come to reprice in the next couple of months, mortgage rates could be at that level. So the you know that margin's getting pretty thin now. So um, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, it sounds like an economist sitting on the fence saying there's trade-offs, but, it, <laughs> but there are a lot of positives and negatives at the moment. And, and you know, by the way, people are, are paying more on their mortgages. Mm. What's your assessment about sort of strength of balance sheets and how uh, willing or close the banks might be to tipping a few people into mortgagee sales? Because I'm always surprised, actually, in the last uh, year or two, how low those mortgagee sale numbers are, not just relative to the last couple of years, but, you know, back to 2019. Yeah, uh, I mean, we record mortgagee sales each quarter. We sort of, you know, we could look at them much more regularly than that, but feel like quarterly is a sort of reasonable time period to get a, an idea of trend. And I think in the last quarter, there's something like 20 mortgagee sales. Uh, go back wow. to the GFC and there was something like eight or 900 in, in a given wow. quarter. So um, that's the sort of scale. Now, hard to know, it's a bit chicken and egg. I mean, attitudes may have changed. 
over time, you know, you, you really get a sense now that mortgage sales are absolute last resort mm-hmm. uh, for, for both borrower and, mm-hmm. and bank. And of course, they're a lagging sort of indicator anyway, because, you know, you've got to actually get in mortgage payment problem first, and then you try to work through a solution, maybe that doesn't work. So it's so it is going to be a lagging indicator. Um, and any stresses that are happening now won't actually show up. As Kelvin, is, is, the next, is the next point of stress on ordinary people the potential loss of the... Um, uh, tax cut on fuel, fuel duty, because um, that's going to be quite yeah. a whack from the. I mean, that that would quite dramatically change Q1 inflation in the in the first quarter of the of 2023, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly out there, and um, I mean, I suppose the, the the refinancing wave is a bit of a slow burner. You know, there's always mm. there's always at, a, at least on an aggregate level, there's there's always um, people rolling over, so it's always kind of happening in the background. But that fuel cut will. You know, bang, it's it's done and it's sort of affecting everybody at the same point. So yeah, I guess when you when you compound all of those things and the fact that it'll be so sudden, um as as sort of feel sudden, wouldn't it? Would would you would you would you be would you be betting on the government extending that? I know that's not a hundred percent in your in your wheelhouse as it were. Um well, I mean, let's face it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, I mean, you know, you'd you'd never rule it out. Uh, who knows what the, what the polls will be saying then, and, and you know what what actual fuel prices might be. Um, yeah, it's one of those. It depends, I think, on the oil price and the polls and the currency too, because of the, um, the currency effect. Kelvin, yeah. I just wanted to uh, finish off by asking how you think the CPI surprise this week might affect the housing market, because um, seasonally we're coming into a more active period. The spring. The daffodils are out. People are putting up their open home signs. And there had been some signs in the last three or four weeks, maybe, that mortgage brokers were a little bit happier about the world. The real estate agents were starting to see a bit more activity. There was a bit of a, you know, rosier tinge perhaps seeping back in. Do you think this will uh, will stop it and everyone will just shut up shop again until we see what happens next year? Yeah, I think you have to, and all else equal, higher inflation, higher official cash rate, higher mortgage rates, all else equal, it has to uh, have a housing housing market impact. I mean, new borrowers simply can't get as much money. Existing borrowers are refinancing onto even higher rates. So, you know, I think there were some signs coming through, you know, really, really tentative. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the surveys on the ground in the housing market that, that people were starting to get a little bit more optimistic. I don't think anybody was really saying the falls are going to end overnight. But people are saying, okay, give it three or six months, get into the first half of next year, and perhaps things might be finding a flaw. I think you've got to say all else equal that this latest development means um, that flaw is pushed back uh, and or the, the downturn gets a little bit deeper. So, you know, if most people say now 15% peak to trough house price fall. Maybe you're looking at, at 20 and, and maybe it's not until the second half of next year that things flatten off. So, yeah, there's, I mean, all else equal, that has to be the case. I think the big, uh, there's big support here. The big key is unemployment. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if that if that turns around, then you know, sort of all bets are off. I think, but provided unemployment stays low, it's it's. I think we're still in this orderly correction. Um, but yeah, no, we will see um, whether we get to that twenty percent number that the Reserve Bank um, talks about, um, and I suspect too in the next year we're getting into a political hotter zone where people mm-hmm. start to hold off on decisions waiting to see who's going to be in government particularly with the potential for a change of government kelvin thank you so much for coming on i'll let you get off on your weekend i really appreciate your time tonight okay all the best enjoy it thank you thank you thank you all right and and now we have a chance peter to to dive into the lettuce
Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the Liz Truss. Yeah, I mean, it's just. I, I must admit, when I when I saw Sue Ella Braverman, the um, the Home Secretary, for about nine seconds, uh, talk in Parliament the other day about uh, the tofu eating what tofu eating Guardian reading workerati. I just I thought it must have been written by a sketch writer because it was certainly written for a sketch writer. Um, yeah, I mean you couldn't make it up. Uh, it's 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 you know she, I mean she's imploded. She's imploded. And she's taken the government with her. But Boris is on his way back. Boris is Boris is on is, his way is back this from for his real? latest is holiday this... in the Caribbean. And according to Stephen Swinford from the Sunday Times, he says Boris says that it is in the national interest that he comes back and stands. It's pretty amazing, really. Uh, that national interest line, by the way, um, the chief correspondent for um, Bloomberg, a former uh, chief um, economic uh, and markets commentator for Bloomberg, a guy mm. called John Orthers, mm. actually came out and said, well, talk about national interest. It would be in the national interest for you not to come back. Mm. And there must be an awful lot of people in the financial markets who, you know, you could argue uh, were the victors here. Um, the bond vigilantes effectively forced uh, Liz Truss to back down on her Reagan era tax cut ideas and uh, has left um, the uh, Conservative Party potentially facing, you know, a generation out of power if there happens to be an election anytime soon. And I'm just thinking you, you've um, you've been in and around that, that um, political scene for a long time. How do you think this is going to play out in terms of um, how long before we get an election? Because that, that was the first well, thing. Well, theoretically, I there's thought. 18 months to two years. There's not one due, due until early 2024. They will also be trying to avoid uh, an election going into winter. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it, I mean, to, to, to call an election now would require them to have some sense of shame. And I, th and I think we've seen that they have absolutely no sense of shame whatsoever. Um, you know, and I, was, I, had, I had a sort of slightly alarming thought today about because we haven't even seen yet Boris Johnson's resignation honours, on, on the kinds of rat bags that he's going to reward with places in the House of Lords because they're you know they're being vetted now and so he may come oh, be able see. to come so, back so and still like... yeah and then it occurred, occurred to me today that whether Liz, Liz Truss will have her own set of resignation honours and will have Lord Quateng. <laughs> It's astonishing. So you know, this is, it is a bit like Trump and his Trump and his um, pardons at the end. Yeah, you yeah, know, everyone yeah. they get, every get you in the house of lords. Exactly. You know, I mean, it is a complete shit fight, as as some as some MP said. Um, in the bottom of that spin-off thing is a fabulous uh, interview with a with a chap called Sir Charles Sir Charles uh, Wheeler, who was a, um, uh, a a British MP who just was interviewed in the in the Houses of Parliament and just said, "I'm livid." I hate my colleagues. They're all bastards. He didn't quite say bastards, but he said, essentially, I hope it was all worth it for you to get that ministerial red box. You know, yeah, and also, yeah. the, all the people like Sue Ella Braverman will, will get £18,000 £18, a year as, as a former minister added to her um, her uh, pension. But you know, I don't I mean, of course she does. But just it is pretty extraordinary that Liz is the, um, the, the shortest serving prime minister in history, including the one who died in office. Yeah, no, it's um, it's like watching a 
because remember this is this is britain where we still have those constitutional ties to the head of state i did wonder at one, one point whether the new king charles would actually well dear um, oh dear as we know you know i wonder what he said today but but i wasn't expecting you <laughs> so you, you made up so the, the tories have said the 1922 committee which has organized this along with the uh, chairman of the conservative party the um any nominees are going to from the from the parliamentary party have to get more than a hundred votes of their colleagues, and it will and it has to their nominations have to close on Monday afternoon, Monday evening. However, they've also said that they're going to open it to the party membership in online voting. You know, oh, Putin God. must be just absolutely rubbish. The Russian the Russian embassy in in London will be you know getting it out. I mean, you can join. It was like if, I don't know whether you remember um, uh, Ed Miliband. Um, who, if you recall, David Cameron once said, uh, you know, you've got the choice of stability under the Conservatives or chaos under Ed Miliband, who was the Labour Party leader before Corbyn. But, but Ed Miliband laid the foundations for the total disaster of Corbyn by opening up the Labour Party membership. Um, so, you know, millions of, uh, well, thousands of um, Trotskyites, if we call them that, you know, went into the Labour Party and delivered Jeremy Corbyn. And so the same th same sort of thing could happen now. It isn't. It isn't just. I, I did see a wonderful statistic the other day today that ninety five percent of the Conservative Party membership is uh, a white. Uh, uh, a white. Um, Thirty nine percent of them, I think, are male, and most of them live in the southeast and 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 you know London. It's just extraordinary. They're, it's, it's a stockbroker belt party now. Yeah, and um, both parties have become hostage to this um, extreme version of. Um, your it's a type of British uh, version of the American uh, uh, problem with gerrymandering, where essentially yeah. you carve up the democracy to the point where the only people you need to convince are your most extreme supporters. And um, that's handicapped both uh, Labour and the Conservatives. And very luckily in New Zealand, Labour, the Labour Party here actually had a similar change where they changed their party leadership rules mm. so that the actual members of the party got got a say and the only reason that we all forget now the only reason Jacinda Ardern is there is because there is an, an out clause which says if there is a change of leader within six weeks I think it is of the election then it's the party itself the caucus itself mm. in parliament that gets to make the choice as opposed to the members and uh national party will be um thanking their lucky stars they've kept it within within the house the other thing i think is interesting from a new zealand point of view here is that we have learned again that financial markets uh do yeah. have some power over a, a government after 15 years of um governments and central banks printing money it, appearing to just thumb their nose at financial markets this time around although britain did have to get to 100 percent debt to gdp before it really started to kick in yeah but essentially it's not just the bond vigilantes upset that they didn't get their uh, spending cuts along with their tax cuts You've got to remember now that more than 30 percent of all the world's pension funds mm, and investment absolutely. funds are signed up to essentially esg rules so this says they um will only invest in environmental uh, social companies rules yeah yeah only invest in companies and governments that comply with the united nations sustainable development goals mm. and actually start to ask questions about 
is this going to undermine your democracy? Is it going to make a whole bunch of people poorer just to make a few people much richer? Is this going to comply with your commitments under the um, the Paris Climate Change Accord? And uh, this is interesting, I think, from a New Zealand point of view, where Christopher Luxon in recent months has started to sound like he is talking mostly to his own supporters as opposed to the middle of New Zealand yeah. politics. And that's a dangerous place for him to be. For example, obviously there was first actual policy he came up with was the tax cuts, getting rid of the 39 cent rate and also um, repealing the changes to interest deductibility, bright line and ring fencing, which actually he hasn't costed. But if you look at the numbers that are coming out of IRD, that plus the removal and changes of the thresholds for the taxes, we're getting up towards three to four billion mark. This is mm. not chump change you can find by, you know. Looking down um, the back of the sofa. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, the problem now for National is that they have promised these tax cuts, promised to repeal all these other things that um, those people with assets would love, and at the same time have not said how they would pay for it. Now, New Zealand isn't quite in the same debt situation that Britain is. Our no. debt is more like 30% of GDP, not 100%. And so you would argue like, we should actually be borrowing more. Still, that's right, even though interest rates are now 4 point something percent as opposed to minus point something mm. a couple of years ago. And uh, this means that uh, uh, National has to be careful. A, they don't alienate the bond vigilantes who want to see balances uh, budgets balance but also the at least half of new zealand's fund managers who are now signed up to the un yeah, yeah. it's a very interesting problem but i just want to address one thing in that because you're, you're absolutely right and it is a critical problem but the the i noticed farad uh, nigel farage in the uk today and a few other people and i've seen this come out in new zealand from various uh, mutual friends of ours who talk about this kind of thing the word globalist gets bandied about. And of course, we have to be extremely careful about that when we talk about bankers and globalists and the clique that controls international finance, because it's essentially an anti-Semitic trope. And and I yeah, think it I'm... needs to be, I mean, I'm not saying that we're not saying you're doing it at all, but I think when we when we talk about globalists um, and bond, bond vigilantes, I mean, the bond vigilantes are globalists in a sense, and that they're, they're, they're protecting all of our money. Mm. But I, I do want to call that out because I find it, revolting when i see it coming up because it's just a nasty little yeah, style no, of this code word it's it's a it's a horrible uh, extension um yeah but i'm i'm um i'm referring I, i'm not suggesting that you're you're saying yeah, it at all that's those. right no i'm referring specifically to the growing share of uh, fund managers and funds management that are adhering to the esg rules and i think it's more than just skin deep now there's a lot of particularly younger fund managers who actually have really committed to the uh, the climate change mm. uh, issue and actually see the role of big money, if you like, and investment um, decisions as the one way to actually make fast change and not have to rely on politicians That's right. who seem um, hamstrung by... Um, and hesitant, yeah. Yeah. So I, th I think that uh, that will be something for uh, Christopher Luxon to watch out for, in part because he has allowed... He's given a lot of leeway and rope to the likes of uh, Simeon Brown. Brown oh, his trans I was just, yeah, what a twerp he is. Can we have him <laughs> on? Because he's a bit of a bloody twerp. 
Yeah. Now he's one of those um, more extreme uh, party members. He needs to do something that... about his diction as well. There was a word he was using this morning incorrectly on on the wireless, and he did it about fifteen times. And I just thought, God Almighty! Yeah. As Paul yeah, Kennedy so... says, he's a cartoon. There's quite a yeah. few of those pe people who are cardboard cutouts of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, Christopher Luxon has to watch out here because transport will be a big issue in the election. And Simeon Brown comes across as a culture warrior on this issue mm. when it shouldn't be. It should be, you know, a really important part of government policy and is crucial to... And also um, a relatively easy part of government policy, as we've discussed. Um, yeah, so tell me, but on looking at the domestic, I was rather charmed by Jacinda Ardern's extremely polite and but slightly passive-aggressive uh, conversations with uh, Wayne Brown yesterday, where she declined to appear, you know, at his side at a press conference, thus giving him, you know, the authority of being of representing half of New Zealand, and she just refused to do it. And I thought that was pretty cool, actually, because he he's, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Hooten. I don't know who Matthew Hooten is really. I mean, I'm, I've read quite a bit of stuff, and he, you know, but he's he's up there like this kind of Machiavelli saying, yeah, just shit all over the media and shit all over Jacinda Ardern and just own it, Wayne. Yeah. Now, here's New Zealand's version of that guy in the thick of it. You know, um, what, what's the guy, the, the Scottish guy in the thick of it, who just calls... Oh, Malcolm, Malcolm Turnbull. Yes, yeah, Malcolm, yes. not Malcolm Turnbull. He was the Australian Prime Minister. Malcolm <laughs> Tucker, yeah. Malcolm Tucker. He yeah. was actually just a... I'm going to skin you and, use you and, put, and, and and I'm going to skin you, going to flay, flay you, put your skin on me and fuck your mother. Yeah, I think it was one of his... Uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's like... That's that's Matthew, that's right. um, and and he's great fun as a dinner uh, companion, um, and and as uh, you know, one of those uh, characters you have to keep an, an ear out to because where, wherever he turns up, some stuff is about to happen, <laughs> good or bad, it's happening. And um, uh, now that he's he's really uh, uh, made it difficult for himself to work closely in the official parts of the National Party, he's creating mayhem. <laughs> In, um, in Auckland, which is uh, entertaining. We've got a couple of questions that have come in in the Q&A. Thank you very much uh, to Ben and to Peter. Ben asks the question, does the last, and I have to address this one because it's um, uh, it's my, my team, uh, does the last two weeks inflation announcement spell the end of hope for team transitory? Oh boy, Ben, this is a great what question. Is, what's team transitory? So this is the idea that the US Federal Reserve um, built uh -huh. up last year, that the inflation we were seeing was just a, a, a hiccup, that it would pass through the system quickly and we'd go back to our normal low inflation. Well, I think you were in team transitory too, Bernard. I think if, I we, went back, a... if we went back to some of our old podcasts, you'd oh, yeah. be in there saying, oh, Jesus Christ, we're never going to get inflation coming back. Exactly. We did. Yeah. Well, I, I'm still in team transitory. It's just a long transition. And um, I'm really keen to uh, argue this, and I'll, I'll make a point in a much more detailed, considered piece next week on what's actually happening with uh, inflationary forces, particularly for producer price inputs. So the stuff at the beginning of the supply chain, you're seeing um, obviously falling uh, energy prices in the US, but actually also electricity and gas mm -hmm. prices mm -hmm. in Europe have come off sharply in the last couple of weeks. And when you look at um, the uh, the gumming up of the supply chains that happened post COVID and to an extent post the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they have also started to come off. And because of the slowing economy in the United States and in Europe and China, we're seeing less demand pressure on the system 
pushing up prices early in the process. So one of the risks here is that central banks, simply because they were shocked uh, late last year, early this year, by the inflation coming hard and fast and staying there longer, overreact and push up interest rates too high this year. You've got to remember, interest rates have gone from naught to 100 pretty much in three seconds. They've actually, if you look at the, for example, the US 30-year mortgage, mortgage uh, rates, they've gone from under 3% to this week, over 7% in the case in the space of a year. That's mm. the fastest um, monetary policy tightening we've had since 1979. Yeah, it's a, it's a definite screech of brakes, isn't it? And that is going to take inflationary pressure out of the economy. So, Ben, excellent question. And I am standing firm in team transit, team transitory. Um, team trans. Bernard, that's big news. That's very big news. <laughs> um, and I'm sticking. I'm sticking with the program. Um, but I realise it's going to be a long program. Okay, I just tweeted Bernard's joined Team Trans. Trans. Oh no, it's mm. it's going to go off. Um, I'll have to have. A I included. Show. I included J.K. Rowling's um, Twitter handle in it. In oh, that's to, brilliant. To yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I need. Mm. Um, so. Uh, I'm I'm hanging in there, although it's clear now that we're going to see mortgage rates closer to 6% than the 5.5 peak that I, I saw, and that uh, we'll see early next year whether the Reserve Bank has to stop things then, mm. because the big news from this week really is that the Reserve Bank on November the 23rd is very likely to do a 75 super bazooka mm -hmm. um, hike in the official cash rate. And then a lot of people think they're going to do another 25 or 50 come February the 22nd. And what, what other, it's, just, it's such a crude lever, isn't it? As, as somebody was pointing out before, that much of our inflation is imported. Um, there's going to be wage pressure. You know, we've got an immigration problem. It's very, there's a whole, you know, they're, they're, you know poor old Adrian Orr has only got one dirty great lever in front of him to pull, isn't he, as it were? That makes, that's not to make, not to create a fairly hideous image in your yeah. mind. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Uh, you're right. It's all he's got. Although um, he used the money printing tool and the LVRs tool in the midst of COVID. Um, uh, he could, in theory, um, start to unwind some of the money printing, effectively um uh, selling bonds back in the market to push up longer-term interest rates. Which could be but a again, tricky. Um, yeah, that would timing really that's going to be really hard. Yeah, and that would amplify the the damage. Um, he could tighten the LVRs again, but that would be very unpopular this close mm. to an election. And the other bit of news that came out this week was that uh, Christopher Luxon suggested that the government give. Adrian Orr, a one-year extension. This is to get around this problem where a potential national government could be lumped with That's a... That's a good idea. You mean, to, you mean to, 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 to transition it through the election? Yes, so that um, uh, we don't have this potential problem where Adrian Orr is there for five years and for at least three of those, a potential national government... But what does government... that mean for... But isn't, isn't Luxon, by doing that... I, I just thought Luxon was actually smoothing it out, but isn't he, in fact, also uh, interfering with the independence of the Bank of... Yes, well, this is this is it's getting into that grey zone where mm. you're mucking around with what should be an apolitical decision. But his decisions earlier this year to come out and so sharply criticise Adrian Orr and to suggest um, not only that there be an independent inquiry, but that he not be appointed for a five-year term, is going to cause some um, uh, drama. And I think yeah. we'll have to keep an eye on that one, particularly over the next two or three months. Right. Shall we do the, the skateboarding dog? 
or you, did you want to say one more thing, Bernard? Just Sorry. one more thing, because there's a question from Peter D, the last question there. What is the probability that a commissioner gets appointed to a major New Zealand city in the next 12 months? I'm going to actually say no, Peter. I don't think there will be, because the last thing the government wants is to be seen to be interfering yet again from the centre to um, hammer. It would be Christchurch or Auckland would be the, the ones. Wayne Brown is going to be allowed to hang himself on his own rope. And uh, Phil Major... On his own... Uh, on his own uh leg rope from a surfboard good idea yeah well idea. yeah that's 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 it and i think um jacinda ardern's um very softly softly approach this week is an indicator that they do not want to be seen as interfering and um uh are being centralist all right shall i do the skateboarding dog yes go for and it and we're going to go out with a video so have a lovely time in Danavirk and places north i'm going to take over the thing here we go kakitano everyone Oh. <laughs> it's just too good it's like it's like monty python with, yeah, exactly. with a pan with palms monty... <laughs> <laughs> see you oh, later you thank you everybody bye -bye. cheers bye-bye